Welcome to Happened Here, People, Places and the Stories They Tell. I'm Stephen Fry, host of Episode 10, 18th Century Black London, 3% of the population. London was the largest city in 18th century Europe and Britain's main trading port with the world. By the 18th century... The slavery trade was well established, with a triangle trade between England, Africa and the Americas. This trade, along with an increasing number of black servants and black sailors, had led to a community growing in London. Historians estimate that between five and 10,000 black people were living in the capital by the mid-18th century. The community was composed of slaves, freed slaves and free-born people. This episode tells the stories of three people, a friend, a poet, and a musician. Without further ado, let's begin. Seventeen Gough Square, Hoban, London. An enslaved child and his two inheritances. Written by Milo Harris, performed by Cassius Conney. Seventeen fifty two. A child sits writing in a cold attic in an unfamiliar house in London, puzzling himself into a new nation, a new name. England. England. Francis Barber. Francis Barber. The boy in the attic, originally named Kwashi, a Ghanaian name, was born enslaved in Jamaica, likely in 1742. He was the property of Colonel Richard Barthurst. But it is not through Barthurst that we know Barber. He is more commonly known for his association with the man whose household he entered shortly after his arrival in Britain, and in whose house he sits now, tracing the shapes of his new identity. That man was Samuel Johnson, critic, author, lexicographer, creator of a work hailed as one of the greatest single achievements of scholarship, a dictionary of the English language. Francis had come into Johnson's household in the weeks immediately after the death of Johnson's wife, Tetty, as a valet. He was ten. Johnson, forty-two. Overwhelmed by grief, and the little boy saw it all. Johnson's famous biographer, James Boswell, wrote of this period, His sufferings upon the death of his wife were severe, beyond what are commonly endured. I have no doubt from the information of many to none of whom I give more credit than to Mr. Francis Barber, who came into his household two weeks after the dismal event. Francis spent two years in Johnson's grief-stricken household. Then, in 1754, Barthurst, who was still Francis's owner, died and granted the child his freedom. Francis had effectively inherited himself in another man's will. Barber left Johnson's house almost at once, becoming apprentice to an apothecary on Cheapside before joining the Royal Navy two years later. Johnson, who had become very attached to Barber, 
was convinced that his former servant had been press-ganged, once again subject to someone else's will, that Barber must be suffering at sea, and lobbied hard to have him discharged. The petition was successful, but Barber subsequently made it clear that the discharge was not any wish of his own. However, in 1760, he returned to Johnson's household as a butler. Such was Johnson's friendship with Barber that he paid for him, aged 25, to attend grammar school. Educated now in Greek and Latin, Barber became his secretary, and in later years, carer to an ageing Johnson. After Johnson's stroke in 1783, Barber would sit up night after night with him as Johnson edited and rewrote his texts. Making his will, Johnson asked Sir John Hawkins, later his first biographer, what provision he should make for Barber. Hawkins said that a nobleman would give £50 a year. Then I shall be noblissimus, replied Johnson, and give him 70. When Johnson died in 1784, Barber was one of only two people present. Johnson had made his friend his residuary legatee and gave him the charge of his books and papers. Hawkins decried this ostentatious bounty and favour to Negroes. But in this second inheritance, Barber also found Johnson's wedding ring, with a handwritten note given to him as a memorial of tenderness. And the one-time servant had it enamelled and presented it to his wife, an enduring testament to an enduring friendship. From Quashy, a boy born into slavery, to a little girl snatched from her family somewhere near the present-day Gambia in West Africa, taken in chains 6,000 kilometres in a cramped slave ship to the Americas and sold into slavery. The Menagerie in the Tower of London, where wild animals, including lions, were kept from the 13th to the 19th century. A Genius in Bondage, written by Sarah Fleming, performed by Jasmine Elcock. Phyllis Wheatley stared down at the lions pacing their cages. In 1773, she had come from Boston to London, only to be shown animals from her homeland in Africa. The lions had been captured. Phyllis had too. Phyllis was visiting the Tower of London with Granville Sharp, a noted abolitionist. Sharp, no doubt, told Phyllis of his famous trial the previous year, the Somerset case, where he proved that because English law outlawed slavery, a slave became free the moment they reached its shores. So, should Phyllis stay in London? Be free? Stolen from West Africa, aged eight, she was purchased in Boston, in Britain's American colonies, by the Wheatley family in 1761, and named after the overcrowded slave ship she'd arrived in, the Phyllis. Taught by the Wheatley children, Phyllis read English and Latin by the age of 11. She had several poems printed in newspapers, the first when she was 14. But racist attitudes, even in the northern states, meant no one would publish her collection of poems. She finally found a potential publisher in London, 
and was allowed to join one of the children on their visit to England. The book was published by Archibald Bell, a frontispiece of Phyllis, 20, advertised the novelty of her colour and gender. In case readers doubted her authorship, an authentication letter printed inside was signed by 18 New England dignitaries, including the governor. We whose names are underwritten do assure the world that the poems were written by Phyllis, a young Negro girl, brought an uncultivated barbarian from Africa and now under the disadvantage of serving as a slave. The book was successful on both sides of the Atlantic, and amazingly, Phyllis received 50% of the profits. Her poems were used by both sides in the slave debate. Slave owners cited some as a reason to continue slavery, arguing that they were converting unbelievers to God. "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a Saviour too, once I redemption neither sought nor knew. Abolitionists used other poems to denounce slavery. I, young in life, by seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Afrique's fancied happy seat. What pangs excruciating must molest, what sorrows labour in my parents' breast. Steeled was that soul, and by no misery moved, that from a father seized his babe beloved. Such, such my case, and can I then but pray? Others may never feel tyrannic sway. Meanwhile, abolitionist, writer, and runaway slave, Ignacio Sancho, complained that those who signed the letter, and those who promoted her in England, didn't address the issue that she was enslaved. These good great folks praised genius in bondage, and, passed by, not one good Samaritan amongst them. Did Phyllis choose to stay in freedom in the UK? No. Her owner, Mrs Wheatley, fell ill, and Phyllis returned to the US, returned to slavery. After the Wheatleys died, Phyllis did gain emancipation, was freed from her cage, but the years after the War of Independence were hard in the US, and she still found no one in America willing to publish a collection of her latest poems. She became a laundress and died in poverty, aged about 31. One thing remains incontrovertible, though. While enslaved, Phyllis was the first African-American published poet. Was snatched from Afrique's fancy heavy seat. What pangs excruciating must molest. What sorrows labour in my parents' breast. As well as being claimed by the Americans as an African-American, Phyllis was also the first African-born woman to become a published poet. Our final story is about a mixed-race musician, free-born in Poland. The Theatre Royal Drury Lane, Covent Garden, London, and the Augarten Concert Hall in Vienna. Beethoven could not believe his ears. Written by James Rampton, performed by Stephen Fry. Striding confidently on stage at the Theatre Royal, Drury Lane, Covent Garden, in 1789, the mixed-race violinist George Bridgetower proceeded to mesmerise the audience with his virtuosity.
Taking numerous bows at the end of his performance, the words, Bravo, maestro, rang in his ears. He was ten years old. The young West Indian German violinist's career went from piano to forte, and before you could say child prodigy, he was performing for King George III and Thomas Jefferson. He became a member of the Prince of Wales Private Orchestra. Fourteen years after his Covent Garden triumph, the now 24-year-old Bridge Tower was befriended by Ludwig van Beethoven, still only in his early thirties, but already acknowledged as one of the greatest composers of the age. After a series of wild nights out together during the spring of 1803, Beethoven presented Bridge Tower with a tuning fork as a mark of affection. Always impulsive, Beethoven also vowed to write a sonata for his new drinking buddy. However, the composer was never on first-name terms with deadlines and did not manage to transcribe the violin score before its premiere. So, when Beethoven and Bridgetower took to the stage at 8am on the 24th of May, 1803, to perform the composer's Violin Sonata No. 9 in A Major, Opus 47, for the first time, the violinist was forced to sight-read the sonata over the shoulder of the composer at the piano. During a wonderfully emotive section of the first movement, bar 35 to be precise, Beethoven etched out a beautiful piano cadenza. To the composer's astonishment, the violinist responded by not only emulating, but improvising and embellishing on it an astounding feat of musicianship that drew oohs of admiration from the knowledgeable Viennese audience. Beethoven could not believe his ears. A man whose passion was never very far from the surface, the composer was overcome. He leapt up from his piano stool, gave Bridge Tower a mighty hug, exclaiming, Once more, my dear fellow! Sat back down, and started to play again. Straight after the triumphant performance, Beethoven dedicated the sonata to Bridge Tower, immediately presenting the score to his mentee and inscribing it Sonata per uno mulatico lunatico. Sonata for a great lunatic mixed-race composer. The joy was short-lived. That night, celebrating and drinking in one of their favourite haunts, the two basked in their shared experience. But then Bridge Tower made a disobliging comment about a woman close to Beethoven, and the two musicians, both known for their fiery temperaments, had an incendiary falling out. In his fury, Beethoven cut Bridge Tower off, and they never met again. Beethoven sent the sonata to the acclaimed French violinist Rudolf Kreutzer. Ironically, Kreutzer himself never performed it, calling it too difficult, unplayable and incomprehensible. To this day, though, it is called the Kreutzer Sonata. Beethoven's sonata may no longer bear Bridge Tower's name, but a lasting souvenir of their relationship still resides in London.
the tuning fork which Beethoven handed to Bridgetower found its way to two of Britain's most famous composers, Gustav Holst and Vaughan Williams, and is today on display with the score in the British Library. It resonates down the centuries as a memento of a brief, fiery friendship that sparked an episode of sublime musicianship. For both men, that fleeting moment was an ode to joy. Bridge Tower returned to Britain, performing, composing and teaching, becoming part of London's black community, which has been contributing to the capital's economy and eclecticism since at least the 16th century. Happened here. People, places and the stories they tell. Hi, I'm Jasmine Elcock and I read the story about Phyllis Wheatley, who was the first female African-American poet. Having read the story of her travelling all the way across the Atlantic to get her poems published, I remember being astonished knowing that a slave had travelled that far. If, like me, you're interested in more about what we're trying to build at Happened Here, come and visit at happenedhere.com. But for now, everybody involved in Happened Here, the writers, the hosts, the performers, thank you for listening. Do come again. We've got lots more stories to tell. Ah!